It is Locked on NBA. I'm David Locke, host of Locked on NBA. Kevin Pelton joins us as a tradition. Whenever the Jazz go to Portland, Kevin comes down, works on the broadcast with us. We sit down and do a podcast beforehand. We'll touch on all the trade deadline deals that took place for you, uh, as well as we get into what would New Orleans do, some of my fun warrior trade I brought up with the coach we'll get into, uh, some fun other topics also is uh, who are the good coaches in the NBA. That's all coming up. Plus, we've got exciting news for you on the Locked On NBA front. Locked On NBA is going to move to daily with other hosts and other involvement, so look forward to this feed coming your direction more often. We'll have official announcements here in the very near future. In the meantime, here comes Kevin Pelton. If you can send him a thank you, as always, at, at K. Pelton, we'd greatly appreciate it. It is Locked On NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Welcome to the Kevin Pelton, David Locke, Locked On NBA edition, live from Portland, done in the hotel room in Portland today after ramen and great coffee. And he got a hot chocolate. Somehow Kevin survives without caffeine. I'm not sure how that works. But he does it. Uh, we are going to try not to overreact to the Cleveland-Boston massacre that is taking place as we record this and discuss uh, what's going on inside the league and other things in a rambling, lengthy conversation that we usually have. Cleveland is clearly the best team in the NBA. Yeah, I would say let's lean into it. Let's just – the takes <laughs> should be hot. <laughs> From an analysis uh, rather than just on this game, but when you did the, when I did the analysis, they got rid of every single one of their negative possession users. They Other than Jordan Clarkson, they all got generally average or above average possession users. I, I actually thought there was a chance that they got a lot, lot better uh, – and then if they actually decide to play defense, they get they get way better. Right. I mean, that's always the difficult variable to predict with the Cavaliers. Uh, certainly, you know, it's tough for statistical analysis to handle. And, you know, I, this time a year ago, you, your concerns about their defense would have been completely unfounded. This year, I think they seemed pretty well-founded. Uh, to your point, I think they definitely, their floor got so much higher with these trades. Like, we can feel comfortable that this is going to be a very good team going forward. And it seems like LeBron James has bought into the changes. And, you know, I think that's probably as important as almost anything they could do. Now, I still think their ceiling is lower because of the fact that you don't have that that second creator on the perimeter. I mean, maybe Jordan Clarkson is that guy, but, you know, as you would describe with Pack, as I would with my numbers, he's not really been anywhere near as efficient as Kyrie Irving was in that role or Isaiah Thomas theoretically would have been in that role and, and was in Boston. So you don't have that third guy, but, you know, they, I mean, this still could be a very good team. Yeah. The other th- answer on this whole Cleveland thing that I think has to be the first part of any conversation what they had was broken, like way broken. So any move makes them a great deal better than they were. This actually might have also made them very good. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of always those tricky things when you're evaluating transactions is, you know, most people just look at, was this a good transaction? And not the question, the other question, which is, was there a different transaction we could have done that would have been better? That I think is, it, which is difficult to gauge, but you know, in this case, like the the deal I would wonder about is whether they could have taken that first round pick and one of the expiring contracts they sent to the Lakers. I mean, you know, if, I, presumably Isaiah Thomas, since for chemistry reasons they were probably looking to move him. Could you have taken that package and gotten Tyreek Evans and someone else from the Memphis Grizzlies? Isaiah Thomas and Derrick Rose uh, got traded on the same day. Whose fall is bigger? Rose's fall is still 
bigger, I would say. Uh, I mean, you know, first off, he was MVP. Isaiah, you know, topped out, even though uh, probably in terms of advanced stats, his 2016-17 was probably similar to Derrick Rose's 2010-11. Like, he didn't top out quite that high. And, I mean, we're still looking at, you know, Derrick Rose at this point, he pretty much is what he is. Isaiah Thomas was still a 400-minute sample. Last night in L.A., he looked much more like the Isaiah Thomas we saw in the past. So, you know, there's still hope he can get back to that point. I think that's pretty well gone in Derrick Rose's case. All right, let's get to the Eastern Conference. Uh, I My opinion which you don't agree with, which is the beauty of this, uh, is that I think Toronto was the big loser on the trade deadline. I, I just think they have the makeup to make the NBA Finals. And with one move, I, and I'm not entirely sure what I think it was, but I'm not convinced that Van Velt, Van Vliet, I oh, every time. Come on. Um, Show some respect to my guy, Freddie Van Vliet. Um, your numbers guy. Van Vliet, Wright, Siakam. And a note, I love all of their young guys. Pirtle. I'm just not convinced they're playoff ready. And I would have done something if I was them to add a little playoff oomph or a little bit more experience because I, I really think they have a chance to make the finals and maybe they don't have a, I'm not big into the whole idea, oh, you can't beat the Warriors. No, no. Like, making the finals is an incredible accomplishment, and I think they're right there to do it, and they didn't improve themselves. I mean, I agree with that part of it. Uh, you know, it, Finding the specific trade that would have helped them is, uh, you know, part of the challenge. They also don't have a lot of tradable bad salary. I mean, the salary you would have looked to move, I guess, maybe CJ Miles or then probably Norman Powell, who is trade Norman Powell. Yeah, I can't trade him because he's still within that extension window. So it it basically would have had to have been CJ Miles, unless you're trading one of those young guys in the trade, and I don't think you want to do it. But you know. Uh, there is value to having experience in the playoffs. It, it helps teams. You can see that. But there's also something to be said for getting those young guys' experience. And I just love the way that group plays as a unit. They play so hard. They play together. You've got a, a good amount of shooting with that group and you know the, a lot of versatility defensively. I, I'm very curious to see how they play in the playoffs. I tried to get into this a little bit with Ben Falk on a previous edition of Locked on NBA. Like, what's the difference between a playoff player? The premise of my comment is that there's a difference between a regular season player and a playoff player. Is the premise of my comment accurate? I think it's reasonable. I mean, there are certainly skill sets that translate better than the playoffs than in the regular season. I mean, I think the main thing you look at is players who are imbalanced, you know, at the two ends of the court. Uh, if you've got a guy who can be average or better at both ends of the court, that tends to play better in the playoffs than someone who is more of a specialist because you can game plan away from that specialist. So maybe Andre Robertson in Oklahoma City is the most interesting example because you know the Thunder have missed him terribly so far during the regular season this year. Their, their defense hasn't been the same without him, and their offense hasn't gotten better enough to compensate thus far. But you get into the crucible of a playoff series when teams start aggressively doubling off Andre Robertson. They had a tough time keeping him on the court last year against Houston. They found a way for him to be effective, you know, two years ago in the Eastern Con- in the Western Conference Finals against uh, Golden State when they were kind of shifting him to more of that power forward role uh, alongside Serge Ibaka at center. That to me is kind of the quintessential example of this player. Or alternatively, you know, the all offensive player who suddenly you can start to target and pick on at the other end. So. I, I don't see those kind of players in the Toronto lineup. How good is Boston? I don't know. I mean, they, I don't think they're as good as they looked early in the season. Their offense has 
you know, struggled since then. They're, they're a below average offense and they really need Kyrie Irving on the court to score a lot of the time. I mean, they've been uh, able to play well with just Al Horford on the court by, you know, doing so well defensively. But if you're going to score, it's probably going to require Kyrie Irving. I mean, the big wild card here is, you know, is Gordon Hayward going to come back at some point? What can he give them if he does come back? If he doesn't come back, I think at this point I would pick Cleveland over them in a series. I wonder if he does come back. I mean, what he is, right? right. There's and there's an. It seems as though there'd be an assimilation period of time that's a tough one to get going. But maybe they'll be superior enough in a playoff series that they can do some of that assimilation in in a playoff series uh, that helps you out a little bit. There's uh, so we're not sure on Boston. I think Toronto's pretty darn good, but their playoff history is bad. And frankly, there's a there's a red flag. There's a there's a pretty nervous little number out there about Toronto. They're pretty bad in the final five minutes of games this year. They're back. They their final five minutes numbers look as though every single great change they've made about their new shot selection and everything else disappears once the game gets tight. Which you wonder whether or not that gets happens in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, it could be that same sort of thing where, you know, you lose one game and all of a sudden you're like, this isn't going to work. We got to go back to what we know, which didn't work itself in the playoffs, but is still kind of the more tried and true method for the Raptors. I mean, you know, that's that's why that's why it's going to be interesting to watch. So there's two Eastern Conference teams that have had dramatic changes. The Joe Prunty led. Milwaukee Bucks now as head coach of the number one defensive team in the league since he's taken over. The Detroit Pistons with Blake Griffin look entirely different. Is there any thought that this is more than just these three teams, Toronto, Boston, and Cleveland? Is the East, is there a chance that we have for a league that gets criticized for no parity, that we get something wackiness to happen in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference? I mean, I think those teams are capable of giving these top team series. And of course, you know, someone is going to win a first round series and join those three teams, presumably in the conference semifinals. Uh, Milwaukee is interesting. I, I like what they're doing from a conceptual standpoint, from a process standpoint. They're taking away more of the high value shots that teams were just getting much too easily in Jason Kidd's system. A- at the same time, a lot of the success they've experienced under Joe Prunty is, you know, I think they played, la- I-, I guess, no, they didn't play last night. So I think this is accurate. They, I believe they are shooting, opponents are shooting 28% from three in their last 10 games against Milwaukee, which covers pretty much the entire Prunty era. And that's not a sustainable rate. So it, the Defense is not going to keep looking as good as it has, but I think it's better. And then we also will see what Jabari Parker gives them offensively. I mean, I think I would give either them or a healthy Washington team. Well, I mean, I guess actually the third team we should throw in here is Philly, who like their their point differential I think might be fourth best in the East after the top three. They might be pushing Boston actually after this blowout. If you take the games where Embiid hasn't played out then their point differential really makes them a threat. Right, and even though they're behind in the standings, they're catching up, and uh, I know 538's Carmelo projections have them with right in this mix to get home court advantage in the first round, which would be pretty incredible. Now, you know, we'll see if uh, Embiid could continue to play every game and not sit out for precautionary reasons on back-to-backs or whether he misses some time, but they they probably have to be mentioned as well. I mean, this gets pretty... For, for a league that's being talked about, about how boring, you know, the criticism, which I think is... I don't buy it, by the way. I point out all the time that, well, if we had a Golden State-Cleveland series this year, 
for the fourth straight time, be the most highly rated series of all time. And if we have a Houston, and while simultaneously every pundit in the world will be talking about how bad it is for the league, whereas if we have a Houston-Toronto series, no one's going to watch. And that would actually be bad for the league. But with a league that feels top-heavy, what, we, the, what we're just displaying here a little bit is you could have Washington, Milwaukee, Detroit as the road team in a first or, – or Philadelphia or Milwaukee as the road team in a first-round series, all of which are capable of winning a first-round series. Yeah, I'm still going to need some more time on Detroit because, you know, they've played every single game since they got Blake Griffin at home. At some point, they are going to have to travel outside the city of Detroit to play a basketball yeah, game. It's hard to tell what a home game for them is, though. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of fans dressed up as Red Seats at, at many of those games, even, even after Blake Griffin's arrival. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I'd say is, you know, it's one thing that strikes me when you look at the standings is if you take out the top three, t- the top two teams really in the East this year, since Cleveland has been playing so poorly, and then the top two teams in the West, you'd start to not have a ton of separation after those teams. It's, it's a year where there is, uh, you know, I think a lot of teams in the playoff mix in both conferences, not a lot of terrible teams thus far. You know, Sacramento and Phoenix probably fall into that category, but their records don't reflect it. So, you know, there isn't as much stratification as perhaps we've seen in the past few years. You have did your incredible work with analysis of every single trade at ESPN.com. People should have read it if they haven't. Go back. What was your Blake take? I think that ultimately the size of his salary is going to be problematic for them because it's going to be very difficult for them to add talent around, you know, Drummond and Blake Griffin because those two guys are just making such an enormous percentage of your cap for, you know, four years to come here. So I get totally why they did it because of the fact that they felt like, you know, right now we're going nowhere. We have no way to get a player of Blake Griffin's caliber, which is true, but you, you're basically pushing the, this this problem farther and farther off in the future and then also simultaneously making it a bigger problem down the road. In the next 24 months, how good are they? Uh, before the problem before the problem shows up, how good is a Blake Griffin-Andre Drummond team? I mean, you know, we'll see when they get Reggie Jackson back in the lineup. The fact that, granted, they've been at home and they've won some close games against bad teams in, in addition to... There, there was at least one good win in there. Uh but they're doing that without Reggie Jackson. Previously, they'd just been losing all these close games without Reggie Jackson. So it is an upgrade on what they were doing. I mean, I think, you know, they're probably somewhere in the 45 to 50 win range. I'm still kind of, I think, the sole house member on Blake Griffin Island. Um, I did suddenly realize... I mean, I don't dislike Blake Griffin. It's not... Yeah, okay. So I did, I did realize that I bought my property a long time ago and that I was beginning to have maintenance issues. Um, I, I didn't quite realize how how long I'd been on Blake Griffin Island and how long it had been since my property value had actually gone up. But I still just, I'm not, I, I hear the stuff about how he's, I don't know. I, you, the criticisms of him, I just feel are empty. I feel like he has changed his game to become a more well-rounded player. He still can play with the ball in his hands. I think there's something to be said for players. Uh, we talked about this a little over ramen players who can both set the pick and the pick and roll and run the pick and roll, I think is an incredibly valuable tool in this game. He's probably the best of any big man who can do that. He can rebound and go at a very high rate. I I'm still believe that he is an elite player in this league, and I'm guessing you probably don't necessarily agree with me. Yeah, okay, well, what does elite mean? Is he a top 15 player in the NBA? I was going to go 20. 
Okay. I might be able to fight 15. It might be a push, though. There's a lot of good players in this league. Now, the problem is right now there are, I think, two guys that have bigger contracts than him in the league. Maybe three. So that's that's the problem here is you're not paying him like a top 20 guy. You're paying him like a top 5 to 10 okay, guy. Okay, I'm going to throw you a wild card in this one, though. This gambling thing goes through, and that contract's fine. Do you, you think it's going to bring in that much revenue? I think his contract becomes fine. I don't – I mean – or at least becomes more mal- manageable. I mean, that's that, that's the next spike. That is an interesting wild card, and yes, I, I agree. That's the next new source of revenue. I mean, I, one thing I go back to that we, you know we probably don't often think of it this simply when we talk about trades. Nate Silver wrote this when the Knicks traded for Carmelo Anthony, and it really stuck with me. There are two ways you can win in the NBA: either you can spend more money than other people. Or you have to spend that money more efficiently than other people. And that's basically, I think, the question you should be asking about almost any move and particularly any trade. The Pistons, because of the realities of their finances, are not going to be able to spend more money than other people. They're probably not going to be a tax-paying team. So is getting Blake Griffin a better use of that money than having Tobias Harris for the next couple of years on a friendly contract, having that first-round pick, having whatever you could get in another deal for Avery Bradley? However, when you've already screwed up the use of your money with many of your contracts and you cannot efficiently spend your money anymore, then you might as well go get Blake Griffin. Yeah, and you know it's a, it's a swing for the head this mode because if it works and you actually can get this team into the top four in the Eastern Conference, that's a level of contention you were probably not going to be able to achieve with a Reggie Jackson, Tobias Harris, Andre Drummond core. But like I said, I think what you're doing is you're pushing the problem farther into the future and you're making it a bigger problem if it happens or when it happens. If you were the general manager of we switch to the Western Conference of the New Orleans Pelicans, your choices right now are to roll through the rest of the season and sign DeMarcus Cousins to a deal in the offseason. And I actually think they're screwed. I, I think they have to like offer him real money because the minute they don't offer him real money, then somebody else can match that non-real money and he's insulted by New Orleans, but he's thankful for the other group just psychologically. So I think it, so. your choices really are to pay DeMarcus Cousins or your chant and, and move forward next year or your choice, frankly, is to consider trading Anthony Davis today or in this – you didn't do it at that trade deadline at the beginning of the – if you are the general manager of the New Orleans Pelicans, which for all we know you'll be in the running for in the offseason, um, what do you do? So, I mean, I think you've elucidated one of the problems here, which is that the, the answer to that question probably depends in some part on whether I'm the new general manager of the New Orleans Pelicans or whether I'm Dell Demps, who has been perpetually kind of, you know, in the had my future up in the air with the Pelicans. And a lot of these moves we see, this perhaps is a factor in the the Blake Griffin deal as well. It's a move where, you know, well, if this doesn't work out, we were all getting fired anyway. And that's a really dangerous thing in the NBA. Uh, I remember a a general manager in the league kind of pointing this out to me, uh, the, the concept of a moral hazard, which is that people are willing to take greater risks if they feel those risks are insured. And the way it works often in the NBA is, well, if I'm going to get fired anyway, then I may as well take this huge gamble because if it works out, then I save my job. Great. 
And if it doesn't, well, I was going to get fired anyway. Well, it's interesting. You brought up with Van Gundy. I, I actually was at dinner with someone. And I was talking about Van Gundy, and I was like, I think he could get fired in the next week. This was like right as this trade before. And someone said, what do you mean he could get fired in the next week? Well, by being president and general manager, he actually, I thought, put an expiration date on him much earlier than otherwise because you had to decide whether, as a coach, you wanted him to be your GM for the trade deadline. And then if you didn't want him to be your GM for the offseason, you probably shouldn't be your GM for the trade deadline. And you suddenly are expediting the process. It's, it's, it's a little bit of the South. West Airlines uh, CEO whose name is escaping me in the opening chapter of his book he writes about you know about every single one of your employees almost immediately and the worst thing you can do is not fire them the minute you know they're not your guy that you should be firing an employee immediately upon realizing they're not right yeah because the worst thing that you can have happen is in a in this case a GM trying to save their own job because now the GM's interests are no longer aligned with what's the best interest of the franchise and that, that I think that that puts you in one of two directions. Either that means you need to make the change much more quickly than you normally would, so you don't have that period where they're trying to save their job, or it means you operate with kind of the the Japanese business model where there's very little turnover in the executive ranks, and therefore you feel much more comfortable making a decision that has a good long term payoff because of the fact that you feel like you're going to be around to see that out, which is sort of what the process was. This is not a real question, but it's a fun hypothetical. If I told you that you had to sign either your coach or a GM to a tenure contract, but you had to sign the other to two-year contracts or one-year contracts, which would you do? Okay, that's a great question. The answer has got to be the GM because of the fact that that's like by definition, coaches are not going to have that long-term view. That's not how they're wired, which is part of the problem when you make your coach your front office decision maker. Like the coach's view is always going to be. Uh, there's Mino Hassan, my my ESPN colleague, has a line for this. Like your view is. Uh, uh, I can't remember what it is, but it's like 2 p.m., 7 p.m. versus, you know, seven weeks from seven years from now or whatever the expression is. Um, yeah, so it's got to be the GM would have to be on the 10 year deal on the coach year to year. By the way, I never answered your question about Anthony Davis. I don't know if I was ducking. that. Yeah, you were. What would you do? <sighs> All right, I'm going to send you a trade. OK. Oh, good. I don't know if you listened to my last edition of Locked on NBA. I, I did not, sadly. Clay Thompson and Draymond Green for Anthony Davis. So it's interesting is you're actually making your window in many ways much more short term because of the fact that um, I would probably do that. Can you imagine the Warriors with Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and Anthony Davis? I don't want to. Can I ask you another question? Okay. If you're the Warriors, why wouldn't you do that this offseason? Uh, I mean, that's a pretty huge risk to take, you know, in, in terms of your if those guys want to still be part of the core, you're alienating that, you know, you're maybe alienating the remaining guys, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, their teammates. You just got them Anthony Davis. Uh, it's a, maybe it's Giannis Antetokounmpo instead of Anthony Davis. Maybe it's Carl Anthony Towns instead of Anthony Davis. I mean, I think if you're the Warriors, the only way you like actively, proactively seek to make that move is if you really feel like Clay is going to leave next okay, summer. Okay, but I'll walk through this. I'll walk through why from the Warriors I proactively take this. One, I get a younger stud who carries Steph and Kevin Durant as they get tired. Two, I've listened to Steve Kerr tell me all year long about how this team has been together for four years, battling this thing for four years, how tired they are. It leads me to believe that maybe there is an argument for 
a, a little bit of a shakeup to try to put some juice together. I've watched the Warriors this year, frankly. They don't look very, like they're enjoying themselves nearly the level that they once did. They look pretty upset, angry, grumpy, bored, whatever you want to use. Those aren't great characteristics of a group. Like I think there's a really strong argument that they win their third title in four years and you... and. With the possibility of Clay Thompson leaving, the possibility of that the fact the group is just getting sour, the fact like I I've listened to Steve Kerr. Like I, I didn't come up with this because I'm crazy. I actually came up with this the day after listening to Steve Kerr talk to me about how incredibly tired they are, and he doesn't care about the fact that they only play defense when they have to because he can't ask anything out of them during the season because their runs have been so long. And I thought to myself, that's not a healthy way to live long term. That's all true. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, it's just, I think the the chance that you make your existing players even grumpier by making that move. And, and the other thing you don't want to ask is, you don't want to have your players asking is, am I next? Fair. Would you go for Anadokounmpo, Carl Anthony Towns, or Anthony Davis? I mean, I think of those... Or, or Joel Embiid, or Ben Simmons, or who would be your... So who's number one in my trade value well, Rudy chart? Gobert. Giannis is number one on my trade value chart at this point. I think he's probably... You know, because of the fact that Anthony Davis has dealt with some injury concerns, I think Giannis, even though he's had some some knee soreness this year, I think he's a slightly safer bet. But you can't go wrong with any of those guys. Would any of those teams say no to that proposal? Um, I think Philly probably would at this point. I feel like their time because their timeline is so different. They're not, and they're they're dealing from a position of strength where they've got Joel and Bean signed for five years. Ben Simmons isn't even on his second contract. That's a big difference from the Pelicans, who are talking about Anthony Davis' third contract when he's got a chance to be an unrestricted free agent. Got your heads. You like this one a little bit. I can tell. <laughs> I never know where this discussion is going to go. I had that. I pulled that one out the last week also. This is going to be the Locked on NBA theme when it actually happens. Everyone's going to be like, oh my gosh, I heard it. Yeah, the three people that listen to this will say, I heard it first on Locked on NBA. Um, The Western Conference top is not particularly interesting um, because Houston and Golden State are kind of... But the Western Conference next loop is really interesting. Minnesota kind of just dropped another silly game the other day, and if you actually look at them in the loss column, even though they're fourth, they're not... Stunningly far ahead. Oklahoma City, without Andre Robertson, has been playing about 500, if not less. Denver's got a murderous schedule coming up in March that's tough on them, and they've been all over the map. Uh, Although they will presumably have Paul Millsap back by that I heard. I talked to Adam Otis, Locked on Nuggets host the other day. He said mid-March now. Yeah, that's not great. Uh, so that was surprising. Actually, the last episode of Locked on NBA, we had that right at the very end of the um, very end of the show that they're talking possibly mid-March to mid-March on, on Millsap. See, you got to go to the local experts on the biggest stories. <laughs> the um, shameless. All right, so I keep running down this list of teams. I'm going to forget something because I don't know where I was. Um, you have the Clippers, who did not disband their team at the trade deadline, and suddenly are a playoff contender and getting healthier. You have the Jazz, have won as of our recording eight straight, going into Portland tonight, and you have Portland, who kind of has been fairly nondescript all year except for the fact they're just kind of winning at a 45-47 win rate. So what this is pretty interesting if you include Minnesota, which you probably shouldn't, though they're 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 de- they're a notch above I think in every category, though they do keep losing games like against Chicago the other night and you wonder what the heck's going on. Um what's your thought on this kind of hodgepodge that might be a really exciting playoff 
seeding race. Yeah, and you didn't throw New Orleans in there as well. So now you've got 10 teams for eight playoff spots. And I think we kind of thought that this might resolve itself, you know, before the Jazz went on this winning streak, if they had traded, you know, Hood and or favors in deals that, you know, would have been looking to the future as opposed to this season. And then, you know, if uh, if the Clippers had traded off guys, then, you know, that... Thank you, I'm good. I'll bring it down myself. You got it. All right. Yes, that was the bag pull. All right, continue. Um, so it looked like it could be, you know, really eight teams for eight playoff spots. And then now we're, we're really legitimately sitting here with 10 teams for eight spots. And most of those teams very motivated. Many of those teams very motivated to make the playoffs. I mean, I think maybe no one more so than New Orleans, you know, given the reasons that we kind of outlined earlier for their front office and coaching staff and uh, then also Anthony Davis's future. So I... I, I worry about them. They had, you know, they had a very good first half last night with Nikola Miritich uh, starting at power forward next to Davis, who was kind of the best they've looked with Miritich, and then needed to co- kind of fight back in double overtime to win at Brooklyn. So that didn't end up being a great game for them. Uh, you, the schedule looks favorable for Utah in combination with you know the fact that their point differential has been pretty good. So you know their projections, if you look at them uh, in 538's Carmelo model, really strong. The Clippers also come out pretty well there. They're as healthy as they've been all season now. You know Patrick Beverly's still out, but uh, and they're going like. 10 or 11 deep is the result of, you know, trading first, having all those injuries that forced guys like Tyrone Wallace to step, step into the rotation. And then also trading Blake in a, in a one for two, you know, Boban Marjanovic isn't playing many minutes, but uh, they're really, really deep. And I think, you know, look like a playoff team. So I I don't know if I have a good feel for this. I I am a little worried for the Nuggets. If Millsap is out well into March, who's your two that you had to pick right now that are out. New Orleans and well, I don't know. I guess maybe the Clippers if they do have more injuries. That was really fence city at the end right there. I mean, because like <laughs> well, you totally couched it. So like, is are the Clippers gonna have more injuries? I'm not letting you get away with that. I let you get almost get away with Anthony Davis, but not that. Like, just pick it. Two teams that aren't making it. So New Orleans. Who, bear, who won an overtime last night on a superhuman day by Anthony Davis, and it looks like that's what they need for them to ever win a game, is, and he that's too much to ask. Okay, I'll buy that. So do the Clippers have more injuries? Not if. Do they? I mean, I, I can't predict the future in terms of injuries. Well, but, I know, so then pick. Then. You, know, you know that at the start of the year, that when I was doing my playoff predictions, that I put Utah and Portland in an exact tie for eighth because I didn't want to have to pick between those two teams. I do think that you use the medium gas. <laughs> oh, no. I don't. I honestly don't. Do you have whole milk, 2% or 1%? Uh, I don't really drink milk. I'm, no. There's got to be a good place of example for this. Besides that, I ordered the medium hot chocolate. You did. That was your observation. This is what started earlier today. Is he, I ordered him hot chocolate at the coffee shop. He ordered medium, which when I asked him, are you the one? Like, there's a whole thing about people who use the middle size of the gas. So, like, you either believe that the octane stuff is BS in which case then you use the lowest octane, or you're cheap, and you believe that it's not worth putting gas into your car. Like, one of those two things is your decision. Two, you believe that the octane is real, so you use 90-whatever, and you are, or you're willing to spend money in your car. But the people who use the middle are just splinter-up-their-butt fence-sitters. Actually, yeah, I got another example for this. Vanilla or chocolate or swirl ice cream, and I'm a swirl guy, so... 
that's bad. <laughs> but it's not as bad as medium drink and middle. <laughs> and it's not as bad as Portland and Utah's same record. You know what I did at the beginning of the season? I had Utah, when I did my predictions before the schedule came out, I had Utah in. Then Utah got screwed and has their three their three opponents or their four opponents whom they only play three times are I believe Phoenix, Dallas, Memphis, and the Lakers. And knock them out of the playoffs by a game or two because of that. All right, well, th- then you're going to be able to go back in either way and say that you are right. So you're, you, that's a pretty fence-sitting move as well. Yeah, maybe, but it was pr- like deep, deep level analysis there. So do you, wait a sec. Do you think Portland has a chance to fall out? I think they got a chance. I mean, I just think... You know, because of the fact that the competition is strong rather than I have any specific concerns about the Blazers. All right. He's not going to give us a real answer. He's dodged it again. I mean, it's probably telling that I am not answering Utah in any of these scenarios. I might still answer Utah. Yeah. I mean, it is a lot of game, a few games to make up still. That, that, that's a real thing. I'm not sure there's been a lot of teams that have ever been in 10th when they started an eighth game win streak and still been in 10th when they finished the eighth game in, in the middle of the eighth game win streak. And there are not a lot of teams that have started, had an eight game win streak. They're still under 500 when the eighth game win streak is still going on. That Miami did it last year, but there are not many teams, um, in which that's the case. All right. The, uh, you made an interesting comment offhand as, we were paying for parking. This is where I get all my subjects. I asked you if somebody in the league was a good coach, and you said, you know, I actually don't know who good coaches are and aren't. Like, it's too hard to figure out. Give me the premise of why you say this, and then I have a follow-up. Well, it was, I mean, it was related to you reading a tweet about, it was David Aldridge, right? Yes. Who said that, boy, Ty Lula sure looks like a lot better coach in the last 24 hours after he got all these players active from the trade. And I said, true. do you think Tyron Lue can coach? And you said, I'm not sure. So what coach? So why is it you're not sure? Well, because if you're if how good you look as a coach is really dependent on who the players you have, then is it actually about your coaching or is it actually about your players? Which coaches do you comfortably think you can say are good coaches in the NBA? Pop, Steve Kerr, Brad Stevens, Quinn Snyder is on that list. I mean, you know, you look at even the coaches we would say for sure are good coaches a few years ago, like Stan Van Gundy would have been near the top of that list in Orlando. Do you feel now that you're sure that, or, that Sam Mangani is a good coach? Or is he a good coach who's undermining his own work as a GM? What's Mike D'Antoni? I, and that's another thing. Is So if it's situational, Mike D'Antoni, when he's got the personnel to run his offense, is an amazing coach. When he's in situations in New York and L.A. where he doesn't have the personnel to run it and the stars don't buy into that offense, then he doesn't look like a good coach. So that that's another reason to kind of regress your opinion of your coach to the mean, above and beyond just, you know, it's fit as well as personnel. I, I mean, I guess to, to continue that list, I mean, Carlisle probably has to be on there. Eric Spolstra. Carlisle, I'm a huge fan. But it's interesting. He's been on that list for a long time. And I've heard some people kind of quibble that recently. And their argument is good. That you can compare his run to a lot of other people that we don't classify as good coaches is basically their argument. I I agree with Carlisle. I think his half-court stuff is great. He seems to maximize players. Players go there and seem to get better. I'm with it. But it's it's an interesting choice for us to continually put on that list. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that Dallas has continually struck out in free agency, or at least, you know, they signed Wesley Matthews a few years ago when he was coming off of a ruptured Achilles, and, you know, they, I don't think their personnel has been 
I, I think that's been the problem. Okay. I, I don't disagree with you. I just think it's worth, one's yeah. worth chewing about. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's that's my whole premise here. I, I, so I wholeheartedly endorse it. I mean, Mike Budenholzer is someone who, again, undoubtedly we would have all said, that's a good coach a couple of years ago, and they're winning 60 games with no, no obvious star player. Now, are we sure that Mike Budenholzer is a good coach? I think he probably is a good coach. I think Kenny Atkinson is probably a good coach, but am I sure? Uh, well, and Doc Rivers is one that gets often criticized as won a title and suddenly with an undermanned group look really good this year and probably shouldn't be criticized as much. I got another one where it, was it just Doc Rivers, the GM, was hurting the Doc Rivers, the coach? And then also, yeah, I think coaches tend to look better in situations where they have less talent. By the way, one of those mas- the masters of that is uh, an old friend of ours, Nate McMillan, who is overachieving again this year. You give Nate McMillan low expectations. Those teams are usually pretty good. You know the other one that jumps out to me is two guys who get panned a lot by the media for not being very good coaches are Vinny Del Negro and Randy Whitman. They got just they got both got crushed, right? But I'm not sure either of their franchises has done a lot more since they since they were fired. That's probably true. Uh, I I. I still have a negative association with Randy Whitman when he took over for uh, Dwayne Casey, who also should be mentioned on our list of good coaches uh, in Minnesota. And it was pretty evident the decline from that after their front office said some pretty strong things about how much they were underachieving under Dwayne Casey. So that one's hard. For, but you're, you're right. And yeah, I mean, the Clippers under Doc Rivers have not been magnitude of, of order different than they were under Vinny Delnagher. I mean, Tibbs is another one here. Is is what's Tibbs at this point? He would have been at the top of the list three years ago. We thought, you know, the the Bulls were crazy to fire him. Is and Minnesota is now still not able to get it defensively. Is Tibbs a good coach? Thirtieth in the league over the last ten games. The other one though on Tibbs is number one thing he's criticized for is how much he overplays his players, and yet they're not getting hurt. They don't get hurt during the season. They just wear out long term while everyone else's players are getting hurt, hurt short term. <laughs> yeah, you just don't want to be the next person to pay right. one of Tibbs' players like Joakim Noah or Luol Dang or Derek Rose. Uh, we haven't mentioned Terry Stotts, by the way, and he, he certainly should be in this list. Here's the summation. I go to dinner with coaches a lot, and we talk. I talk this is a question I ask all of our assistants and, not, and everyone, everyone but our head coach, frankly, is which of the coaches when you prep for them you think? The fact of the matter is that 26 of the 30 coaches in this league are great. Right. I think that's really what we're getting to. And, and, and if you talk to the coaches around the league, that's their feeling. They Each of them have two or three guys they think aren't very good, and they're a little surprised by what's going on. And maybe that's just to keep their own hope because then they can, like, you know, like, but I think that there's something of that nature where they really the fact is that most of these coaches are incredible. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And, and of course, when we're evaluating these coaches, it's all relative to the standard they all set. Uh, I mean, there was an interesting piece a few years ago. Dave Barry of Wages of Wins fame wrote a study looking at how players perform, you know, with and without various different coaches and whether there's statistically significant differences in terms of performance, you know, when players go to one coach or another. And he, you know, concluded that in most case, coach cases, the coaches are not statistically distinguishable from each other in terms of statistical significance. Uh, there was a couple at the top end and I think, you know, maybe one or two at the bottom end who who were, you know, outliers enough that you could say with confidence players play better or worse for these coaches. Now, the issue with that study is it didn't factor in defense. It didn't factor in who you give playing time to, all sorts of other things that we can talk about that I'll also go into coaching. But, you know, the the takeaway that uh, that Henry Abbott wrote about it many years ago back on True Hoop was, uh, you know, 
basically you're shuffling deck chairs when you change coaches and that the the coaches you could just put in a deck chair and it would be as good. And that wasn't really the thought at all. It's just that you can't tell between the coaches who have made it to this level how good they are on that measure. We'll leave it on that note. There's a hundred more things I have to talk to Kevin Pelton about. What are some of the great work you've done recently? Oh, uh, I've been mostly grading trades at this point. So uh, check that out. I also wrote about looking back at the, the Kyrie Irving trade return for Cleveland, getting Jay Crowder, which, of course, should be of interest to Utah fans, and Isaiah Thomas, and why that didn't work out for the Cavaliers as well as I, for one, thought that it would. I missed on that one badly. Uh, what was your thesis? Uh, that basically, I mean, I, Isaiah Thomas, obviously, the injury was a big factor, but in, in both his and Crowder's cases, they performed worse than any possible assessment could have predicted, again, outside of the Isaiah Thomas injury. Well, it's interesting because one of my fundamental beliefs is that teammates actually have little impact on players and that players usually perform very consistently in their use of an individual possession, not offense, defensively, but just that by the time it gets to the ball leaving a guy's hand, wherever that might be on the floor, it's pretty consistent regardless of who they're on the floor with. Both Jake Crowder and Isaiah Thomas, the injury on Isaiah Thomas, that was not the case. It's interesting because, you know, when I hear you mention that, I feel like I would argue against you with it. But then if it was someone that was telling me, well, all, you know, it's really important who you're playing with. That's a crucial factor. Then I would probably argue against that person, too. And I wouldn't agree with anyone. Or you just like to argue with me. (laughs) That is Kevin Pelton. He's fabulous. Go click on his stuff at ESPN.com and send him a thank you at at Kate Pelton. This is Locked on NBA, part of the Locked on Podcast Network.